Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Reading week is over. Term has started. Back from holiday and dog care is Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello. I hear you went for pizza with your dog Alf and the letters editor of the TLS. I did. I mean, and my husband and the letters editor of the TLS's wife. Yes. It wasn't just this strange, like, trio. I wasn't, make, I wasn't making an improper <laughs> accusation, but it brought together two things. It's a very two, strange scenario. And it brought together two interests of yours, pizza yeah. and food yeah. and Alf. And, and I asked the agent who's yeah. the letters editor, and he said that Alf was a very lovely dog. Thanks. And he also said, as expected, you produced, you went to a place that served good pizza. Oh, well, yeah, of course. No pineapples. What do you think I am? Well, I know. I just thought, imagine going for pizza with you. Imagine going somewhere to a bad imagine. pizza. Oh. No one would order such a thing in my presence. No. And Hawaiian? Was, was Hawaiian on the menu? No. We're never going to agree it on wasn't, this. It wasn't It wasn't a popular takeaway establishment. Though. It was... What, only, you had margarita pizzas? <laughs> of course I did. It's so boring. No one... <laughs> it's just so, it's like boring pizza. We'll never agree. No. We should um, give you an offer if you want to subscribe to the TLS uh, cheaply if you live in the USA or Canada. Go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod19 and you'll get five issues for just £5 or $5. This week, we celebrate the back-to-school period with a special on children's literature. Robert Douglas Fairhurst has written a new introduction to Peter Pan, which we are extracting in the paper. He's here to tell us how that story of a little boy did indeed grow up. And friends of the show, Ros Deneen and Toby Lishtig have been busy reviewing children's books and will join us to tell us what they have learnt. And speaking of children, our producer Matt has returned from having his second child, so big congratulations to him, his wife and the lovely Freya. Don't work with children or animals. We've all heard the warning. And while I'd love to say we've ignored it on both counts in this week's TLS, I can't truthfully say animals have played a part here. Children, though, and young adults certainly have, as we've called on a crack team of reviewers to tackle the latest books for readers in their age ranges from four right up to 16. Ros Deneen, whose wild idea I believe this was, is on the line to present their findings. 
We're also joined at the same time by Toby Lishtig to consider the latest instalment in the Alfie series by Shirley Hughes, the 92-year-old author whose work straddles both classic status and new release. As Toby points out, it's been nearly 40 years since Alfie first appeared on bedside tables, and many of those who grew up with the exploits of the tossle-haired four-year-old will now have small children of their own to read to. Does Alfie still appeal? We shall see. Roz and Toby, welcome. Hello. Hi. Roz, well, that let's... sounded very uh, enthusiastic, <laughs> didn't it? Did it? I choose to Not think really. it did. Okay, fine. Um, I choose to think it did. Yeah, okay, ignore me. Roz, ignore Stig, and let's start with <laughs> your, in the collective sense here, review. What was the thinking behind this approach of, of, of bringing the children and, and the young readers into the piece? It's always more interesting, I think, to find out what they think about these books because they're written for them. We started off the piece, I started off the piece, looking at a book by... Oliver Jeffers, who has written for many years these really beautiful picture books for children, but adults really enjoy them as well, I think, because they have this sort of, this knowing adultness underneath the lovely illustrations. But now his most recent book is very clearly a children's book that I think is meant for adults. That's The Fate of Fausto, and that's in the production and the story and all of it. It's, it's a, it, I think it's a book, really, a gift book for adults. It looks like a children's book. Why would someone do that, though? Because that doesn't... Presumably they've well, still the, got the a... parents are, are buying the books, so... Yeah. I, think, I think that he, and I think this is evident in all his work, I think he just does... It just follows passion projects. So I think this was just a, it would have been like a story that he wants to tell in a certain way rather than I think he's probably reached a certain level of success now where he doesn't have to think about is this going to sell who's going to buy it that sort of thing he just created this story and it's all it was all printed in a very special press in Paris and it's difficult to imagine children caring about it being printed in Paris in a, in a lovely style I suppose exactly but they made quite a big note of that in the book itself so it's quite a beautiful object but most children books are not written for the adults they're written for the children and I, so I was just quite interested to see what they had to say about about a big selection of new releases. And children can be, obviously, the harshest critics of all. They're full of praise here. Which books stand out? I was really interested by um, Mary Imlar and Mina Kane. So Mary is 13 and Mina is 11, and they both reviewed The Good Thieves by Catherine Rundell. And Catherine Rundell's really successful already. Um, It's won lots and lots of prizes. She's a fellow at All Souls College at Oxford, and she writes these children's books as well. And this new one is a really excellent sort of adventure story. This very strong protagonist called Vita Marlowe arrives in New York. She's taken the boat from England and she arrives in New York and her grandfather, Jack, has been cheated out of his big ancestral home called Hudson Guard Castle by a greedy millionaire. And so Vita gets together a pickpocket, an animal tamer, and an aspiring acrobat, and together they devise a plan to reclaim Hudson Castle. Of course. And Mary beautifully said that she loved the strong will of the characters, and that really spoke to her. And I remember thinking, yeah, I think lots of children's fiction has this this brilliant spirit of strong rebelliousness in its these characters. And Mina pulled out some really lovely little lines in it that she found funny and showed lots of really excellent detail in the book. So I think that one stands out. And then also uh, The Burning, which is for slightly older readers, and that's written by Laura Bates, who did the Everyday Sexism Project. And this is a book for 
older readers and I think it sort of tackles cyberbullying and misogyny and gender politics in a school in a sleepy seaside town in Scotland and that also really stood out as well. <clears throat> Do you mm. think YA books do you think they're a good thing? And I ask this uh, only on this basis, that when I was growing up, there were children's books, which you grew out of pretty quickly, and then there were grown-up books. And the mm. quicker you got to grown-up books, in my experience, the more words you learnt, the more you learnt about the world, the more you grew up in terms of your reading age. Quick answer to that, yes, I do think they're a good thing. And I, I remember growing up with YA books. So there was an author who I haven't talked about for years, actually, called Paul Johnson, who used to write books about sort of teenage life, which I kind of read when I was about 13, and it was about 17-year-olds. And they were clearly for that kind of younger market, but they were kind of adult books and their themes. And they were a great gateway drug for me. Haven't they sort of always been there, though? They might not just not have been marketed. Well, I, mean, I, I don't C.S. Remember. Lewis, I suppose you could say that that was for a. I would count that as a kid. Child. I would say that's a kid's book. I, I, might, mm. I just remember growing up that you read books that were in your house. I just wonder because there's it's such a massive market. It's a market as we've seen from that Guardian piece that is riddled with identity <clears> politics. <throat> and it's pointed in terms of how it handles issues. It's filled with loathing between authors and against groups and stuff like that, or against people who might be critical of groups. So it's become this supercharged industry. And I just wonder whether as a first principle, is it not good to read kids' books until you're 10 and then when you're 10, read adult books? Because then that drags your reading upwards. I suppose lots of 10-year-olds might not be ready for adult books. I don't think I was ready for adult books when I was 10. I think I wasn't one of those 10-year-olds who sort of picked up the the books my parents were reading and immediately engaged them. Maybe when I was like sort of 14, I did. Yeah. But, uh, but now if you were 14, you'd have books about gladiator fights that are aimed about 14 to 16 year olds in order to help them think about mental health so everything is kind of i think i'm cool with it as a principle i think when books when any art form is so politically charged that it's more about the political message mm. than the art that's when i begin to worry slightly mm. and that's more prevalent in this group there's my book because we all feel ya books have to teach us stuff the reason why it's so charged is because they can't just be a story which may or may not have dodgy politics. The message is more important. And I'm not sure that's a great lesson when it comes to art mm. and fiction, because art and fiction, to me, you discover stuff and some stuff you rail against and you dislike, some you happen to fall in love with and you read everything by, by that author. What about something like Philip Pullman, though? He's a young adult author, well, and I think his works very nuanced and it's not I mean you know there's politics in it but it's not kind of hectoring I commend him oh I agree I, 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 you get great authors I'm not no, I'm not oh, I see but you mean just as a, cat, you, but as, a, as a category the category is going to push things in a, in a certain direction because right. it can't just be the art in and of itself because if there was a novel that had a horrible maybe this is fine I don't know if it had a horrible attitude within it it would not get published now Let's be absolutely, I mean, that, it seems to me the politics of YA market is if there was a, a beautiful piece of writing that had abhorrent political opinions in it, it would simply be crushed at source. Readers would look at it, professional readers for publishers and say it's not worth the risk. I'm not sure I agree, though. I think that there's a lot of young adult fiction that you might find politically objectionable. If you look at the Twilight series, for mm. example, a lot of that is this very traditional, quite toxic relationship, romance about ownership written by someone who has uh, was a Mormon and has quite politics. I think it doesn't necessarily align with the description of young adult fiction that you're yeah. giving. But do you not and think there is a strain in young adult fiction? Necessarily so, because you're talking about moulding young minds and you don't want it to be mm. filled with abhorrent thinking. I think also, though, because the industry is so big, so one in every three books sold in the UK are for young adults or 
children. Um, I think when I look at these books and, and all, everything being published, I think that the confidence is so high in this sector of book publishing and that actually a lot of the publishers embrace experiment in a way that adult publishing doesn't. I don't think it is as small and closed and right on as we're necessarily describing it here. Yeah, and I wonder as well if there's not a thing which actually speaks to why you've you've done the piece that you've done, giving voice to the, the children and young readers as you have. There's always this risk that we impose what we think onto it rather than letting the kids just read it themselves and decide we're kind of imposing this message about whether it's good or bad or what the, the big issues in it might yeah. be that the kids might not actually contextualise in the same heavy, important way as we are. Well, how do these books prosper, Ros? Because it's interesting because we review children's books now and you know I don't want to underplay the importance of the TLS, but I feel that TLS reviews are not going to turn a book from selling 500 copies to 500,000 copies. Where are these things clicking? Are they clicking? Because they're not generally reviewed anywhere, really. There's not a great tradition of, of reviewing of children's fiction except in, in roundups in Britain, and a lot of people complain about that. Is it word of mouth? Is it marketing? How do, how do they I click? Think, I don't really know, but I'm not sure it is marketing, actually. I think a lot of it is word of mouth. Yeah. In my experience, my kids, the, it's, it's like there are lots of secrets for them to find out about this author and that author and this series. It's passed between them. And it's sort of a currency in that way. So I think that a lot of this stuff is self-marketed. <laughs> Once it takes off and publishers and invest in it, there are some very clever marketing campaigns. So, for example, there's the kind of Julie Donaldson roadshow. I think she spent years sort of touring the country doing Gruffalo stuff, and that just helps things to move along and, and suddenly... And then, obviously, when there are TV tie-ins and all the rest of it, then yeah. things go stratospheric. I'm trying to think, because my kids are now 10 and 8, my eldest two, and so they're making much more decisions on what they want to read rather than just the stuff that's kind of read to them. And I can't quite work out where they get it from. I mean, maybe it's a bit at school, but I don't get the feeling that playgrounds around the country are filled with book, you know, impromptu book groups of kids sort of brandishing the books that they love. Maybe they are. they are. specifically asking you to buy them stuff, or are yeah. they kind of going to bookshops and picking stuff out? They do a bit like. of that. I mean, bookshops, I think, are a great place for sort yeah. of covers. Like, both of my children have got into various Tom Gates books, right. and then once you buy one, there's 155 of them. Um... But maybe that's good. I mean, do you do you subscribe to the view, Ros, that all reading is good reading? Yeah, I do, especially if they feel allowed to stop a book when they've, you know, had enough of it. They, as long as they don't feel they have to read it to the end, then, yeah, I think all reading is good reading. Do you tend to feel very excited about the books? And actually, this is going to come to you, Toby, because you've, you've reviewed Alfie, the yes, latest instalment in, in Shirley Hughes's series. Do you feel especially excited or is there a kind of a trepidation when you bring books that you loved as a young reader to your own children? I mean, what if they don't like it? What if it just doesn't speak to them? Well, they don't like it in my experience. <laughs> so my, my oldest child is four. <laughs> I will be devastated if she doesn't like Roald Dahl when the time comes and it's possible I she won't. I can't see that. I just no, can't, I see, can't that see that happening. <laughs> no. But, you know, so I, I, there's a small element of trepidation, but mostly excitement. I gave, I had all the Just William books in my house and I was like, I loved Just William as a kid. It was really key to my self-identity as a kind of young, scruffy outsider. 
And I said, and when my kids got sort of eight, nine, I thought, oh, this is great. And they just weren't interested. Yeah. It was completely inaccessible. It was complete. It was like it was written in another language. I think so. It, I was, like, it, was, it was completely gone. I like Joss Williams well, and we're of a similar era, Stig. And, and I, I think when we were reading them, they were, although they were a completely different era, there was something tangible. It was like our parents' generation, perhaps. Yeah. Or even, it, was, it was earlier, actually. But it was Second World grandparents War. Grandparents' generation. But there was something you could sort of, within cultural memory, that made them easy to read. I don't imagine my, my kids would want to do Joss Williams either. Well, and w- what about Alfie? Because you you describe the latest book as classic hues. So first, give us a sense of what classic hues is is specifically, and also if it translates, if it still works. Yeah, it it totally is. I mean, I think one of the things is Shirley Hughes' Alfie book, so she's been writing for about 40 years, they feature this four-year-old child, he's a preschooler, and his maybe one-and-a-half-year-old sister. And the thing is, with books for the very, very young, featuring characters who are very, very young... Life hasn't changed all that much. I mean, you know, it depends what kind of world you live in. But for, you know, most two, three, four-year-olds still like digging sandcastles, still like playing shops in the garden, still like doing the things they've always liked doing for a long time. They're not quite hooked on iPads yet. They're not dealing with social media. So the books that reflect their lives haven't actually changed all that much. And Shirley Hughes's, you know, her latest Alfie book, it could have... You know, it's 2019, it could have been written in 1981 quite easily. Um, she doesn't, you know, feature iPads in the background or whatever. But it completely still spoke to my four-year-old when I read it. It still completely speaks to that generation, I think, or that age. And because she was kind of ahead of her time in the sense that there was always multicultural yeah, phases. So you, it was exa- never... Exactly. So she was, I mean, she she's in her 90s now she she's written in her memoir so it's, it's, it's a lovely memoir actually it's called a life drawing it was written earlier it was written about 15 years ago and she reflects on her own life growing up in the Wirral in Liverpool and then moving to London in the in the 50s and she lived in Notting Hill she lived in Notting Hill all her life and it's a very black area it was full of um, Afro-Caribbeans in the 50s and obviously it still is and it's got that great carnival heritage so she's always been surrounded by multiculturalism in London and her stories have always reflected that the Alfie stories have characters from many different backgrounds so there's, there was never a kind of political problem with, with her books I mean yes that the family's white and it's a very certain sort of Englishness it's a quite a middle class Englishness that I've likened to the Posey Simmons characters a sort of slightly bohemian dishevelled arty milieu but also at the same time who wouldn't be able to afford a house well it's, yeah so it's actually one of the points I made the, the only really, really dated thing about um, <laughs> Shirley Hughes's books is that the, the house that the uh, you know, fairly ordinary family lives in would now be completely unaffordable it's somewhere in West London it's this sort of beautiful terrace house with a big garden you think that family can't live there. Now. But surely that's only the sort of thing that we would think as adults. Yeah. For, I mean, yeah. for a child, it's just oh, a magical realm, uh, possibly. Of course. And it's, they're beautifully naturalistic, these, these books, both in terms of what happens. Very little happens. Um, she's very good at the tiny dramas of being a small child. You know, you meet a friend on the beach, the friend plays with you at first, then the friend sees some of their other friends and runs off, and how completely inconsequential that is, but how absolutely enormous that is if you're four years old. And then in terms of her style as well, she's very good on the kind of kinetic quality of children playing, but she, she uses these classic scenes on the seaside, watercolours. It's very naturalistic and it's very relatable to you. It's very cosy. Do your kids like them, Ros? Absolutely, they love them, yeah. In fact, Ros lent me her one ones. Favorites. Dogger as well. Dogger, oh, Dogger, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dogger I think... is, I mean, Dogger, I mean, it's hard to beat Dogger in general. Yeah. <laughs> it's her best, best-selling book. I like The Lion and the Unicorn, I seem to remember, but that's that's a different sort of book. Oh, it? that's one of her ones for slightly older. Yeah. 
uh, children, I think. Did you not yeah. read that? No. Uh, the thing I read to my kids, which is very young, is a book called Colours, where she told poems about each colour, and then each colour is drawn beautifully on the other page. Yes. And I think, and I can remember, the, the, the colour red is in the poem ends with something about a winter's day, a cold red sun, and the picture is a dad with a kid on his shoulder walking home at like four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, four o'clock in the afternoon mm. in January, yes. when the yeah. sun is setting, that sort of gloom descends your inner city and this sort of burning red sun is just going low in the horizon. It's so magnificently tactile, yeah. a piece of drawing. And I, you think of Shirley Hughes, and to me, I think of co- kind of a cosiness, a sort of tactile cosiness, which you don't really get necessarily in more recent ones because they tend to be more garish more vibrant more plot oriented no absolutely there's a, there is a coast I mean she, she talks about her use of colour and she says that she uses colour to this is the quote to remind the reader of sunny autumn days wet walks blowy skies above the TV aerials and you've chosen that as, 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 as part of your head, headline wet walks blowy sky and it is it's all about that kind of tactile relationship Tonal. with nature with weather and I mean, I've been reading them to my four and a half year old for two years. She cannot get enough of them. I mean, I just I, I've, I've read them over and over and over again. Which is, I think if you'd find in five years time, your children will be so used to a narrative world, which is much more fast paced, much more plot oriented, much more get to the get to the centre of it uh, and have explosions that when you show them more gentle stuff after that point, it feels very gentle. But I guess at two, three, four they're not really exposed to that speeding up that we see in culture elsewhere. No, I think just life in general is so completely far out there and like a trip anyway that, you know, you don't need to present them with very, you know, (laughs) crazy stuff to spark their imaginations. I mean, everything's amazing and terrifying and, you know, full of possibility. And then you get old, and, then you get old. <laughs> and everything's miserable. <laughs> Ros, do you feel you, well, you you've got you've sat down with a bunch of kids, all of whom work for the TLS at some level, and write eloquently or speak, or, or did they dictate it to you, or did they send it in written? Because are they or are they not children of people who work at the TLS? They are mostly not all of them. They are mostly children of people who work at the TLS. They all filed on time, and some of them hand wrote as well as emailed their oh reviews. God. I hope their handwriting was, was beautiful yeah. and neat. Uh, Ros, can I, shall I confess publicly now that I gave two books to my children and they resolutely did nothing with them? Really? They, did, they were non-deliverers. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my kids do read. Uh, and actually, I kind of like the way they read. They read like I read in the sense that my house is filled with books that are picked up, mm. put down. Mm. If there's a five-minute wait for something they'll pick up a book, you know, and I kind of had that myself, you know, that, and you can tell people, I think, it's a real good judge of people. If you put someone on a blank table with a cereal box on it, how soon before they just read every word on the cereal box? I think all of us would be reading the cereal box straight away, don't you think? I used to, I used to remember reading the cereal boxes over breakfast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And they were rubbish. That's why I know what riboflavin. <laughs> yes. yeah, that's why I've heard that's of riboflavin. What is it? What is it? What is it? But I, 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 I've heard of it, but my, my children didn't deliver. Did yours? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What did you? What did yours read? Uh, she read the Secret Life of Unicorns, which is the uh, the final book that summed up, and and so did her cousin. And her cousin said that it's it's a, it's a factual book about unicorns and their habitats and their factual. habits. So it is. It's absolutely factual. But and I asked her what her favourite fact about unicorns was, and she said, "My favourite fact is the fact that unicorns really do exist." I think she was wavering until she read this book, she and now she, she knows it's true. She might be put in charge of Brexit. <laughs> we'll have to see. <laughs> Let's leave it there. Thank you very much indeed. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Peter Pan has, according to Robert Douglas Fairhurst, become the perfect self-image of an age obsessed with age. Every time its hero seems to have gone for good, he reappears on the windowsill asking for us to come back and play. Which makes Pan seem both eternal but also a little creepy. Which is probably right when we think of the development of a story that began when J.M. Barry met three young children in Kensington Gardens. The stories he told grew into the story of Peter Pan, first in a novel and then more significantly on the stage. How did it get so popular and what does it say about culture then and now? Robert Douglas First has written the introduction to The Collected Peter Pan, published this month by OUP, and joins Thea and me. Robert, hello. Hello. Uh, So Peter Pan, as I naively thought of it, is one story. What is there to collect in The Collected Peter Pan? How many versions exist? Oh, my God. I suppose the five versions which I've collected in this book are the most important ones. Uh, But there are dozens of little variations because Barry had these itchy fingers. He couldn't stop revising. He couldn't stop fiddling with the story and playing variations on the story and even creating a film, various versions of a film which never even got made. Um, and And it's partly because the boys that he wrote the stories for and about grew up but of course Peter Pan wouldn't grow up and he wanted to keep him nice and close he wants to keep Peter Pan alive and the best way of doing that was to carry on sort of playing around with the original play 
because if he fixed it, if he printed it, if he um, sent it off into the world on its own, then it would be like pinning a butterfly to a board, and that's that's not what he wanted. The word you use a couple of times in the piece, actually, is he kept tinkering, which is funny, actually, if you think. Maybe he saw himself as a kind of tinkerbell. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was part of the joke, but yes. <laughs> uh, what sort of man was he then? You know, he meets these these kids... Three boys in Kensington Gardens, five-year-old George, four-year-old Jack, and their baby brother Peter, Llewellyn Davis. So how does he end up turning that meeting into into this character? Well, little man, big talent, very, very strange writer. Um, I mean, the reason that he was so obsessed with these um, little boys, which, of course, these days after the Pisa Pan, a pop, Michael Jackson will please look on a bit more suspiciously, a bit more sceptically, is because of his own childhood. It's because of uh, his little brother who dies uh, in a skating accident when he is 13 years old and Barry himself is six. And he tries very hard then to replace his dead brother David in his mother's affections. The fact that he never grows more than five feet sort of helps in that, that he really then starts to see himself as this boy who never could or never would or never should grow up. And how sceptical should we be about this? Because, you, you know, you mentioned where he first appears, it's a work of fiction called The Little White Bird, which sounds very sort of febrile in terms of the interactions with young children. Are we in territory where people should be sceptical about the good or bad intentions of Barry? It's hard to know. I mean, I mean, psychoanalyzing the dead is always a good spectator sport, but they tend not to talk back, so it's a pretty one-sided uh, kind of conversation. When it comes to The Little White Bird, which is the first time that Peter Pan makes a proper published appearance um, as, as a story within the story, there are some very, very strange moments in which um, the uh, the narrator, who is a bachelor, befriends this little boy and he gets the little boy to stay with him. And the little boy, um, he bathes him and the little boy goes to bed clutching his finger while the, uh, the narrator stays awake, thinking hard. What do we make of that? It's impossible to say. Um, was he an innocent in his own eyes, in the eyes of his friends? Yes, he was. What would happen to him these days? He would be hounded by the press and probably locked up. So the Michael Jackson parallel is not without its significance. You know, he had a place called Neverland and and some people who want to defend him say he had a very childlike view of the world and people who don't want to defend him say that was a cover for, for something far more malign. No, and, and I suppose in the piece of Pan parallel with, with Michael Jackson is especially interesting because in his case, he was trying to recapture a childhood he never had, wasn't he? I mean, all, all the plastic surgery and the obsession with Peter Pan, it's to do with trying to manufacture an inventive childhood, whereas Barry's seems to have been much more a kind of reluctance to face the real world, or perhaps the recognition that he that he had. That's simply the facts of chronology, just as uh, Hook is always trying to run away from the crocodile. And it's a kind of joke, because it's it's clock, isn't it? it it's a crocodile. It's the idea of time itself, which you can't escape from. How was the work received at the time, then, when it was first put on stage? So um, when it's first put on stage in 1904, it is a massive hit straight away. And then it carries on being revived year after year after year um, with the same costumes, the same set. Uh, and as I say in the introduction, it, be it becomes as much a part of Christmas as Turkey or Santa Claus. So it becomes a kind of secular ritual that people want to go back to Neverland uh, as an audience in the same way that in the story, 
although Wendy herself grows up, she then starts sending her little daughter to Neverland to, to stay with Peter. The people connected to the story, Robert, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of thread of tragedy and sadness around all of us. You talk about Barry's own childhood and, and the death of his brother. Virtually everyone connected to him and this story, these three boys, it doesn't end well, does it? No, it doesn't. And of course, there are more than three because um, later on, there are two more brothers. There's Michael, there's Nico. So George, who is the eldest um, of of the Llewellyn Davis children, he ends up going off to um, fight in the First World War with a copy of The Little White Bird in his pocket and he gets shot. Michael Llewellyn Davis um, drowns himself, um, probably a suicide, probably a suicide pack with another undergraduate. Um, Peter, uh, who had a lifetime of being first bullied at school and then um, pursued by the press. In 1960, ended up killing himself by um, stepping off onto a track, Sloan Square Underground Station. Um, and even that, you start to think, you know, underground, the underground, you know, th- these are all lost boys. Uh, and what do we conclude from that? This is a story that sort of pervaded the world of Barry and those who t- connected to him that they were sort of gripped by the fiction. Is that? I mean, are, are we overplaying that? Then is it just is it just a sort of coincidence? I think it's probably just a series of horrible coincidences. But the idea that the first time we see Peter Pan, he's trying to catch hold of his own shadow, and then Wendy sews on his shadow. I mean, in some ways, it is a very shadowy play. It's a very shadowy, and as you said earlier, slightly creepy presence in our culture. And even the fact that um, Peter looks through windows uh, and needs to be invited in through windows and sort of hovers around outside flying. I mean, this is, this is a rewriting of Dracula. Dracula, this other great cultural figure who, who can't get any older and has to carry on renewing himself. And is that why it's persi- I mean, I'm trying to think of how much it's persisted for me. Th- I mean, Theus, to you, did it? Was it a is it a part of your childhood? Do you think Peter Pan? I think it was. Yeah, I can't remember specifically how. I mean, probably, probably the cartoon. It must be the Disney the biggest, film. Yeah, I mean, because I think if you'd said to me, Rob, before we I read this, was I'd have said it was a novel. I wouldn't. I, in my yeah, mind, I vaguely remember an illustrated, an illustrated version that I had, but I don't know what edition that would have been. It's just always been around, as you kind of suggest, Robert. It's just a part of the kind of the, the, the common material of growing up. It's, it's, a, it's a common cultural thread. It, it is, and I suppose what's so odd is that uh, although Peter Pan has changed his appearance in all these different films, changed his sex um, from principal boy these days usually to boy, has never got any older. He's, he's become a sort of... It's like an application of cultural Botox, isn't it? That we feel the need to to go back to this story, to check, to check that it hasn't really changed. Um, and that's why it reappears in, in the strangest places. So the story of Tinkerbell dying and being brought back to life reappears in E.T. as a sort of parallel to, to E.T. himself um, being, being brought back to life. Um, it, it's remade as Hook. Uh, by Steven Spielberg, where you have this middle-aged executive needing to rediscover his inner child. You know, it, it crops up in these very, very strange, unexpected places, even if the story itself we now tend to think of as a pan to mime. It's, uh, well done. Do you think he in- enjoyed living with it for his own for his whole life, or do you think he sort of felt haunted by this work that he'd created, do you think? Oh, oh I, I, I think for him it was it was more of a need that he needed to satisfy and then it became a compulsion and eventually I think it became a curse. There is one of the jokes um, about him 
was that when you looked at him, when you met him, he looked at it as if he'd been buried alive. Mm. And, and you think, yeah, this, this is absolutely true, that all the little boys that he befriended, of course, left him because they grew up. The one little boy who wouldn't leave him is, of course, the only one he'd invented. But in some ways, Peter Pan looking through the window at the darlings in the nursery um, once they're restored um, as, a, as a complete family and looking sadly through the window. It's a bit like Barry himself looking through the viewfinder of his camera uh, and trying to capture these little boys and realising this is a world of fun and games from which, of course, he has been excluded because he's a grown-up. And did he make much money from it? And did it give him something as well as take something away? Well, this is, the, this is the, the, the happy ending of the story, that it brought him a huge amount of money um, and then in turn that allows him to adopt... Uh, the Llewellyn Davis boys, when their their parents died, very kind of close to each other, you know, miserably of of cancer in both cases. But then he bequeathed um, the uh, the rights to Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, and then there was a special act of Parliament when the copyright ran out, in which various kind of elderly peers stood up and talked about you know how much Tinkerbell meant to them. <laughs> wonderful bit of you know parliamentary theatre, and they have now have the rights in perpetuity. So. Um, every time there is uh, an edition, by mine, uh, or there is uh, a new film or any other adaptation, a chunk of money goes to, uh, to Great Ormond Street. And that must be, min- I mean, not least your edition, Robert, but I imagine the Spielberg film, the Disney cartoon, that's a serious amount of money that's come it's, about. It's a big chunk. I mean, it, it, it more or less, it doesn't exactly run Great Ormond Street, but it, it is a, as they would say, a large um, funding stream. And just finally, is it good? I mean, you'll have read, I mean, you know, that turn of the century plays, very popular plays, there's a certain hackery around them when one thinks about them. If you read this purely as a literary piece of theatre, what would you have made of it? Well, so it's very different from the other um, examples of the cult of Pan. You think about Robert Louis Stevenson and Saki and Forster and, um, and The Wind in the Willows and others, where, where Pan represents the call of the wild. And this isn't exactly the call of the mild, but it's certainly a, it's, it's a toned down softened edged version um, of all that is it good yes it's a modern myth and therefore literary quality doesn't come into it that what he's done um, is he's tapped a vein which more than 100 years on is still you know kind of throbbing it's a hell of a story really uh, robert Douglas first thank you very much indeed yeah, I can't think of when I first... It's the Disney cartoon. I can cartoon. almost I can, see it. It's definitely the Disney cartoon, the Disney but cartoon. I can almost see... I've been trying so hard to bring it back to the forefront of my mind, but I can almost see an illustrated version that I had of it. I can almost feel it. Yeah. I, I just can, don't know where it is or what it was. I can see that the, one of the darlings is a little baby that gets dragged along, I think, in the Disney one, and she's yeah. kind of got a teddy in her hand. That's what I yeah. kind of feel. I'm just too old for the... You're probably the right age for Hook coming out. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I remember that. that would have been the very early yeah, I went nine, to the cinema to see yeah. it, yeah. Was Julia Roberts Tinkerbell? I cannot remember. I've got a feeling, Robin Williams is Hook. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how good it was. I don't know. I think I loved it at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of everything that I wanted, which was just kind of swashbuckling adventures. Yeah. But I would obviously have been completely unaware of the, the weighty, <laughs> distressing, tragic subtext. It's a great story, isn't it? That yeah. There is a there is actually a film, isn't there? There is a film about Joan yeah, Barry's there life. Is. Did, did years ago. I've got a few, I'm not just naming Hollywood actors because I'm interested. But I've got a few. <laughs> <laughs> who played it? Uh, the guy who's in Pirates of the Caribbean, Johnny Depp. I've got a feeling oh, Johnny Depp's yeah. in it in some in some way, shape, or form. I think you're right. Maybe right. <laughs> 
Anyway, that, I think we've done children's fiction there. I think we have. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to Roz and to Toby and to Robert Douglas Fairhurst. Make sure you're subscribing to the TLS, which is as ever filled with some good stuff. Next week, we're going to try to solve the problem of climate change. Thea, you're obviously off. No one could be expected to do two whole weeks of this in a row. No, absolutely not. It would be inhuman. But Lucy is going to be here on hand to offer practical northern solutions. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.